Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Daniel Pink tells us about the scientific secrets of perfect timing in his new book, When. Daniel H. Pink is the author of several books, including the New York Times best-selling Drive, To Sell is Human and A Whole New Mind. His books have been translated into 35 languages, and have sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. Daniel's latest book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, we're going to be talking about today. Dan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me. Tell me what the idea is behind When, first of all. Well, the idea is that you and I and everybody make all kinds of timing decisions in our life when to do things. When in the day should you exercise? When in the day should you do certain kinds of work? When should you take a break? But even more broadly, when should you start a project? When should you abandon a project? When should you get married? And we tend to make these decisions based mostly on intuition and guesswork because we believe that timing is an art. And my argument is is that timing is actually a science. There's this incredible body of research out there across many, many domains that if you go into it wide enough and deep enough, you can harvest the evidence to help us make systematically better, smarter, shrewder decisions about when to do things. And we're talking there about the science of chronobiology, the idea that, of... That's part of it, sure. Yeah, uh, circadian rhythms, right. the body clock, basically, exactly, that people exactly. would know it as. I guess we should start with, when did we first realize that that was a thing, that there was, that our body had sort of inherent oh, well, rhythms. Um, well that, that's actually a fairly ancient, not ancient, but a, a fairly long-standing finding. I mean, it was a, a 17th, 18th century when some scientists began recognizing that living creatures had internal clocks. And as time went on, we realized the, the initial discovery wasn't plants, that plants would open and close. They thought originally in response to light, but it turned out they were actually abiding by their own internal timekeeper. And then as, as science progressed, we realized that human beings would also metaphorically open and close at certain mm -hmm. times of day. And so you can, and you can actually measure some of these things. For instance, we all have heard about circadian rhythms, and, and obviously those are important. There's a whole line of research in chronobiology about this. The three winners of the Nobel Prize in medicine last year work in chronobiology. But you know, one, one of the things that I was surprised by was how important the changes in body temperature are over the course of a day. So we are, as you say, we are temporal creatures. We don't have a biological clock. We essentially have biological clocks in every cell in our body. We are, in, in some ways, ourselves, clocks. We are a collection of clocks. We are timekeepers. Now, you start this book off with the story of the Lusitania and what happened there. Tell me why. 
Yeah, so this is, um, I'm speculating that, that one of the signal moments in British history of the last hundred years might have a different interpretation of it. So we know about the Lusitania. It was it left New York. It was traveling to the UK. And it was eventually sunk by a German U-boat. And there have been all a blaze of conspiracy theories about what really happened. I think that if you go back and look at that story, there's a simpler explanation. And there was a captain of the ship. He made two really, really bad tactical decisions that I think that allowed the U-boat to sink the Lusitania. And I think a very plausible explanation is that he made bad decisions because he made them in the afternoon. We know from research that there are certain times of day when we're better at making decisions. And he was operating at what we know is precisely the worst time for decision making. And he was doing it having lost a night's sleep. So let's talk about that research then. So there's this idea that in the morning we're basically at our peak. You know, yeah. We get up for the first few hours, we're working at our peak. And then we have a massive crash in the afternoon. Uh But not only that, then into the early evening, we peak up again. Yes. Let's take a step back on our chronotype. That's true for most people. The chronotype is essentially our propensity to do we fall asleep early and wake up early? Or do we fall asleep late and wake up late? Are we larks or are we we owls? And about 20% of us are that way. What we have is about 20% of people are strong night owls. 14% of people are strong morning people. The rest of us are in between. And for those of us who are morning people or in between, we tend to move through the day in this stage, exactly as you say, Neil, a peak, a trough, a recovery. For night owls, though, it's often the other way, a recovery, trough, peak. And so what we know is that during our peak, it's really about the peak more than the morning. During the peak, though, which for most of us is the morning, we're better off doing analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus. That could be writing an article for Little Adams. It could be doing a financial analysis. During the trough, uh, which for almost all of us is that early to mid-afternoon, it's not good for very much. And so what we should be doing is doing our administrative work then, answering our routine emails, filing away papers, doing all the kinds of mundane things that come with a typical day at work. Then, as you suggest, the later stages of the day, or at least the recovery period, which for most of us is the later stages of the day, we're better off doing creative work. And the reason for that is twofold. One, our mood has improved because our mood follows this peak trough recovery cycle over the course of a day for those of us who are morning people and intermediate. Our mood improves and we have less vigilance. And that's an interesting combination because when our mood is higher but we're less vigilant, we're better off doing creative brainstorming kind of work. And so the, the fact of the matter is, is that if we're a little bit more intentional about when we do things, we can do, get a, squeeze out a little bit more productivity, a little bit more creativity, and I think equally important, just a greater sense of, of satisfaction. Let's look at the way in which that could actually have practical applications. Yeah. So you talk in the book about a study into Danish school children. Yes. Oh, yeah, this is, this is a big deal. So, so um, And this is interesting the way increasingly the way that researchers are finding insights about our behavior. Uh, And one of these is a study done, as you say, of two million Danish standardized tests. And in Denmark, students take these standardized tests on computers, but the typical Danish school has more students than computers, so everybody can't take it at the same time. So they're randomly assigned. Some take it in the morning, some kids take it in the afternoon, and it turns out that there is a marked difference between kids taking the test in the morning and kids taking the test in the afternoon. Taking a test in the afternoon uh, is equivalent to missing two weeks of school. Okay, so this, this ought to make us 
raise our eyebrows a little bit because we make policy decisions based on standardized tests. Every once in a while, we make decisions about a, a kid's particular path based on standardized tests. And what this is showing is that when the kid takes the test is a factor, a big factor in that kid's score. We should say that specifically we're talking about younger children here. Yeah, we were right, just, exactly. We were just talking about uh, you know the idea of the you know the larks and the owls right. and, and night people and and morning people and of course there's there's other determinants here as well and one is biology. Now if we sat Danish teenagers at their standardized tests in the morning, if that sat, would be disastrous. If we sat Danish teenagers at a, for a standardized test at seven thirty in the morning you would have maybe one-third of them not even awake. Um, and that's a great point. And this, and this goes back to chronobiology and chronotypes. Our chronotype changes over time. Um, there's, a, there's an age effect on that. So little kids are, tend to be pretty much morning people. But around the age of 14, we undergo a significant change in our chronobiology. We essentially, our clocks move forward two, sometimes three hours. Wake up later, go to sleep later. Um, and a lot of parents and teachers look at that and say, oh, these teenagers are lazy. They're not. They're teenagers, and their biology has changed. And that period of peak alliness goes from about 14 to 24. And so the other challenge when it comes to education is that, especially in the United States, school starts too early for teenagers. Having a teenager start school at 7.30 in the morning is a bad idea. This is one reason why the American Academy of Pediatrics, basically, the, the you know, essentially every pediatrician, in the United States of America has said to schools, please do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 a.m. because it's contraindicated by everything that we know. And yet, most schools still start school before 8.30 a.m. The average school start time in America is 8.03 a.m. You have plenty of students going to school at 7.30, sometimes waiting for buses at 6.30. Uh, it is a exceptionally bad idea, and the evidence on this on this one in particular, is overwhelming. The the school districts that have moved back the school start time... To, and some have. Some have, right. Yeah. To, to 9 or 9.15 have seen higher test scores, lower dropout rates, better measures on depression, on obesity, on teenage car crashes. It's just... Um, that's one that's, that's not even a close call. Yeah, let's just reiterate some of the things you just said there because we're not just talking about teenagers abilities at school which is obviously incredibly important right but you're literally talking about this being detrimental to their health in lots of ways literally you're i mean i'll just echo what you say literally you see increased depression you see increased obesity you see increased teenage car accidents when school starts early and then when school starts later you see less depression less obesity fewer car accidents i don't think there's a lot of room for disagreement mm -hmm. i mean at some level it's appalling that every school hasn't recognized the science and has started and has decided to start school later in the day and indeed it seems like a no-brainer so what is the real up to why are most schools not doing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the experience here in the UK, the American experience. I think the adult decision makers are doing things for their own convenience rather than for the education of kids, to put a very fine point on it. So you have parents who say, well, wait a second, I don't want to have to drop my kid off at school at 9.15 when I need to be at work at 9. Um, staying with the, the school day for a moment, let's talk about the importance of breaks, taking regular breaks during that day. And obviously we can extrapolate that out to the, the work environment too. Sure. Um, but particularly at schools, yeah. what's the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to put the 
issue of breaks in school in the larger context of breaks. And what the research shows on breaks, the research on breaks is quite remarkable. The research on breaks shows we should be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And the idea of recess, um, we have a word called recess uh, that describes certain breaks that kids have during the day. And one of the trends in the United States has been to eliminate recess in the name of improving standardized test scores. And it's one of those areas, it's like, okay, let's do precisely the wrong thing. One of the things that research shows very clearly is that breaks enhance learning for children. So you look at a place, a country like Finland, Finland has 15 minute breaks every hour, right? Which to an American, maybe even to a Brit, seems <laughs> indulgent and lazy and absurd. Finland is one of the highest performing countries in the world in, uh, in, in education. Obviously, it's not only because, it's not yeah. because of those breaks, but that's a factor. It could be a factor in it. But there's a lot of evidence of this. Let's go back to Denmark. We talked about those Denmark, those test scores. You know how to get those test scores back up? You give the kids a 20 to 30 minute break before they take the test, those afternoon test scores go back up. And that would even be in the afternoon when... Absolutely, absolutely. And you look at, and so you have... Um, American school districts trying to eliminate recess in the name of, of rigor, you also have the emergence in some school districts in the United States, particularly for a few of them in Texas for some low-income kids, actually adding recesses and seeing the test scores go back up. The bigger point here, Neil, is that we have to get rid of that old-fashioned mindset that says breaks are an indulgence. And listen, I am as much of a sinner as anybody else on all of this because I was someone who rarely took breaks, felt that it was better not only in terms of the productivity aspect of it, but even the morality aspect of it, of powering through. That was virtuous to power through, and it's not. Well, just staying with that sentiment, obviously we, we've all had the saying, lunches for wimps. Right. And obviously we've also all had the saying that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and that right. seems self-explanatory. We've just been sleeping for eight hours, yeah. we wake up, we need to take on yeah. some energy. But you make a case in this book that lunch is the most important meal of the day. Yeah, I think that, in some, I think it, that if you look at the research, breakfast is probably overvalued and lunch is undervalued. So breakfast, is breakfast the most important meal of the day? I think the answer is a definitive maybe. Uh, I don't think the research is clear one way or another. The research certainly doesn't say breakfast is harmful. The research certainly doesn't say don't do that. But uh, I think that in some ways the importance of breakfast, when you look at the research, it's oversold because of the way the studies are done. They're observational studies. So it, what it shows is that people who eat breakfast are healthy. That's nice. But it's not a randomized control experiment, so that could be because healthy people just happen to eat breakfast, that breakfast isn't making them healthy. Um, some of them are sponsored by the cereal companies, some of these studies, so it's like, uh, on the other hand, lunch is undersold. That The research that's coming out on lunch as another way to take a break during the day is pretty powerful. Uh, we should be a little bit more intentional about taking lunch breaks and certain kinds of lunch breaks. What we're talking about here is leaving your desk, going out for lunch, for a half an hour and then coming back. That that kind of break can be extremely restorative.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Daniel Pink and we're talking about his latest book, which is When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. You do talk about the importance of napping in this book. Now, I'm how you described yourself once in that I feel like I can't nap. If I go yeah. to sleep in the afternoon, I'm done for the day. I wake up <laughs> feeling terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just for the rest of the day, I just yeah. want to go to bed. Yeah. Where am I going wrong? Yeah, uh, you're, doing, you're napping wrong, Neil. Sorry to tell you that. Um, but I, I can empathize with you because I was, I've napped wrong most of my life. Um, what you're experiencing there is something called sleep inertia, which is when we take a nap in, for a certain length, uh, we, have, we wake up with this kind of groggy, boggy feeling that, depending on the length of the nap, can last a, a fair amount of time. And you have to dig out of that before you get any of the restorative benefits of the nap. However, what the research shows uh, is that there is an ideal napping time in terms of how to get the most restorative benefit without that sleep inertia. And that ideal time is, between, is remarkably short, shorter than I would have imagined, between 10 and 20 minutes. A, a nap between 10 and 20 minutes can give you that restoration in alertness and mood and uh, in your capacity to concentrate without dipping you down into that sleep inertia. And so um, I had the same experience in napping. I always felt terrible afterwards. Now I, I'm beginning to get better at doing very, very, very short naps, 10 to 20 minutes. And so how do we, I mean, obviously I'm not talking about everybody here because people obviously have jobs, but say yeah. I'm at home. Yeah. How do I do that? How do I take Well, I think the... that there's an ideal nap form yeah. out there, and it's a little bit peculiar, and, and, I, and I do this. And again, uh, the, while the research shows that habitual nappers get more out of it, I don't think it's realistic to say everybody should take a nap every day at, at all. And I certainly do not take a nap every day at all. I, take, I will take one of these short naps sometimes if I haven't gotten a lot of sleep last night or if for whatever reason I'm feeling bad. But what I think we need to do is we need to start destigmatizing naps um, in the way that we're destigmatizing lunch, mm-hmm. destigmatizing recess. 
And so, but the ideal nap is, is a little bit peculiar. So what you should do, the first thing you should do in this ideal nap, which sounds weird, is have a cup of coffee. Okay, it doesn't make any sense, but it will in a moment. And then what I do is, is I have a cup of coffee, I set my phone alarm for 23 minutes, and then I will find, you know, um, find a quiet space. I put on headphones, uh, lean back in a chair, close my eyes, set my phone timer for 23 minutes, and then try to go to sleep. When people first start doing this, it's sometimes difficult to fall asleep right away. Most people I've found are able to fall asleep relatively quickly. So let's say that I can fall asleep in seven, eight minutes. Okay, so seven, eight minutes, 23 minutes, that gives me what? 15, 16 minute nap. That's right in the spot between 10 and 20 minutes. Then the phone uh, alarm goes off, and I wake up after that 16 minute nap. But here's the kicker, remember I had that cup of coffee. It takes about 25 minutes for coffee to get into the bloodstream. As soon as I'm waking up, I get hit with that second boost of the caffeine. So this is a technique known as the nappuccino, which, um, is, a, which is a technique that I use. I, I'm visiting, I, I've only been here in London for uh, a few days and obviously suffering from a little bit of jet lag. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had two nappuccinos since I've been here. Right, I want to move us on to the central part of the book where you talk about beginnings, middle, middles and ends, to, to, to put it simply. Yeah. Um, beginnings, so how to start right. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how people starting work, starting out on a career, often how successful they will be in that all depends on the economic conditions in which the job starts, and that can follow them for decades. Yes, this is a, I find this like alarming and, and, and underappreciated researchers from Lisa Kahn at Yale University who found studying the United States labor market. There's been similar research in Canada. I don't know about here in the UK, but uh, what it showed is that you, you take two people who are similarly situated, graduating from university. Let's say they have the same concentration, same level of ability, whatever. One of them graduates in a recession. One of them graduates in a boom economy, sort of like the one we're in, we're in right now. Recession, boom economy, that's gonna show up in their wages 20 years later, uh, which is pretty remarkable and a little bit, and a little bit terrifying. Um, and it shows how much the importance of initial conditions shape our trajectory. And this is, now there's certain kinds of situations where we as human beings can control our beginnings, exercise some sovereignty over beginnings or reboot and make a fresh start. This is one where you can't. And so I think it calls for solutions that that don't put the onus on the individual. So if you have two, there's no justice in that. One person starts here, one person starts there, and the person who starts happened through through coincidence, graduates in a boom time, is gonna do significantly better. Um, I I mean, good for that person. It's the the person who is is struggling, I think we need to have some kind of collective group solution here too. So one thing that you could do is, you know, in the United States, many people take on loans to pay for college. Uh, to pay for university, and so maybe you could have a loan forgiveness program when, for when the unemployment rate hits a certain level. Maybe you can think of graduating in a recession as akin to a natural disaster of some kind, so it would unlock funds to help people find jobs or to tide themselves over. But there are situations where people getting off to the, to the wrong start is no fault of their own and requires a group solution rather than an individual solution. Moving us on to middles everybody is familiar with the concept of the midlife crisis right. and we might think that maps well onto that 
graph we were talking about at the beginning, where in life we you know we get started well, we have a peak, we have a massive crash, mm-hmm. and then we're ha- it does turn out actually that we are happier as, we, as yeah. we go into old age. But actually, the midlife crisis, when research looks into it, is Total. not so much of a crisis. The, 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 the midlife crisis is complete crap. I mean, it's utter nonsense. I mean, the idea that this, I, the, the, the notion that this idea, which is originated with essentially no research, almost zero intellectual underpinnings, has become part of the parlance is appalling. Um, what There is, though, research on how well-being changes over time. And as you say, Neil, it's not a crisis, but it is shaped like a, a gently sloped U that would end up being a um, higher sense of well-being in our 20s and 30s. It begins to slip in our 40s. It reaches its bottom point in our 50s and then begins to tick back up again in our 60s and 70s. And what's interesting about this research on this U-shaped curve of well-being, where there's a slight slump in the middle of, of life, is that it's not um, a national phenomenon at all. It's been replicated in uh, over 70 countries. See this exact same pattern. Uh, so the midlife crisis is, is bunk, but this U-shaped curve of well-being, this slump in the middle, is a very, very sturdy feature. And it ends up being, that middle slump ends up being um, a feature of other sorts of behavior and practices as well. And people may remember that we've, we've talked about this next particular study on a previous Little Atoms about midlife crisis. But you can also see this in apes. Sure. Right. You know, uh, uh, great apes um, have the same kind of pattern. Now, how, you know, now, again, it's important to understand how do you measure well-being in apes. They're not filling out forms or answering online surveys. But what you have is you have human caretakers, uh, apes in captivity. This is these are this is recent apes in captivity. So we don't know about apes in the wild because it's hard for them to, you know, use their smartphones to fill out online surveys. But the apes in captivity have human caregivers, and anybody who has experience with other mammals knows if you have a dog or a cat hey my cat is seems a little off today or my cat isn't eating with gusto and so you can you can ask these human caregivers are these apes socializing how are they eating and the the path of ape well-being over time is also shaped like a u and so there are many many things that uh, where you you where, where people end up being um elevated at the beginnings and the ends but then slump in the middle so we're not necessarily going to have a massive crash in the middle of our life or in no. the middle of a project or something that no. we're working on, but often we do need some sort of kickstart, let us say. We get, you know, we get into, a, into a rut. You're talking this section about a famous basketball game, but particularly what I wanted to talk about was this idea about, which I, I found amazing, the idea of, of, in terms of the score, yeah. going into half-time at a basketball game. Yeah. Tell me that. that yeah, so, so this is some very interesting research. Um, and there's a great example of a, of a famous U.S. college basketball game that exemplified this. But there's some interesting research. Again, it's big data research looking at uh, professional basketball in the U.S., the, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, um, looking at scores at halftime. And... At halftime, you know, the exact middle of the game, the research shows that teams that are ahead at halftime are more likely to win the game. That should not be a revelation, right? They have more points, and the game is half over. But there's, a, there's an exception to that, and that is teams that are trailing by one point are more likely to win. Trailing by one point is equivalent to being ahead by two points, which is, you know, makes you shake your head. 
And so what it seems to be, and this has then been, remember, because in these correlation studies, when we're just looking at the correlation between scores and winning, we don't know the cause of anything, um, but we can see these big correlations. However, you can then run experiments to try to divine the, the causation of it. And what this experimental research has shown is that um, there's something about being slightly behind in the middle that is motivating. And I'm, I'm moving us on to endings yeah. now. And staying with sport, there's again another amazing statistic, yeah. which is that people who are, say, 29, 39, 49 and 59 are massively overrepresented when it comes yes. to things like doing marathons. First time marathons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. I find that pretty amazing. So 29 year olds are twice as likely to run a marathon as 28 year olds or 30 year olds. 49-year-olds are three times as likely to run a marathon as 50-year-olds. It makes no sense physiologically because the difference in oxygen capacity or muscle strength at 28 and 29 is meaningless. Um, but what it is is that people who are reaching that end of a decade tend to behave differently, particularly when it comes to things that involve meaning and purpose. And more generally, endings uh, can help us energize. When we see the end of something we end up kicking a little bit harder. You see this in a whole range of different behaviors. Um, and again, we are moving through time, and when we sense an ending, we can energize. Even an ending as arbitrary as a life decade, which again has no physiological significance. To stay with endings then, uh, Pixar, the uh, animated film producers, why are they so good at endings? Well, because I think that they realize what kind of endings are most meaningful to people? And so what you see in, in the research more generally is that human beings given a choice prefer endings that elevate. We prefer rising sequences rather than declining sequences. So you see this in a number of different, number of different studies about when to give good news and bad news, uh, how people will prefer the, the, the last item offered to them rather than the first item offered to them when they evaluate it later on. But when it comes to, uh, you see it in people's propensity to when they get to the end of, toward the end of a life or toward even the end of a university career to edit out other people and focus on things that are very meaningful. But um, this idea of rising sequences over declining sequences is not the, kind of like the sunny, happy endings that we tend to think of in Hollywood. Uh, the best endings, the richest endings, the most valuable endings, the most meaningful endings, the most memorable endings are endings that have this really fascinating emotion that we don't know a lot about. We don't have to take ser seriously enough, which is poignancy. Poignancy is happiness that has, a, that has some sprinkles of sadness in it. And it operates by a weird form of emotional physics in that adding sadness to happiness actually elevates happiness because it deepens a sense of meaning. And so Pixar has, is good at uh, confecting these poignant endings where the character doesn't always get what he or she wants, but does get what he or she needs. In the last section of the book, you talk about something called group timing yeah. and, and syncing. And to illustrate this, tell me about the time you spent with the, uh, the Dabba Wallers. In yeah, Dubai. yeah. So it was interesting about how groups synchronize in time. And so I went to Mumbai, India to study these fellows known as Dabba Wallers. So what they do, it's quite remarkable. So in India, many people who are working in offices prefer to cook, have a home-cooked lunch for lunch rather than going out to Pizza Express. However, they leave work so early in the morning, it's hard to cook a proper meal and then bring it with you. So what happens is, is that the people who are left behind at home, and again, you have middle-class people, upper-middle-class people in India who have cooks, you have some women who aren't working, who aren't in the workplace, 
they will actually cook a proper lunch, put it in hot lunch, put it in these things, these, these tiffins, these, these metal containers, and pack it up. Now, the question then becomes, how do you get that stack of tiffins to the office 25 kilometers away? That's where the Dabawalas come in. And they have their businesses, they go around house to house, collecting these lunches, and then deliver them to the desks of these workers downtown. They, do, they deliver 200,000 lunches every day without error. They, their level of accuracy is so great that FedEx and UPS have come out to study them. And they do it without any technology. They do it without GPS. They do it without UPC scanners. They, uh, they do it without technology. Uh, these are generally men with eighth grade education. Um, and so I was curious about how do they, how are they so well synchronized? How are they able to do this thing? And, and that you add that and some research on choirs and some researchers on rowers and you begin to understand how do groups synchronize in time. And you actually went out and followed them on there. I went out for a whole day. I went out to every lunch pickup, um, walking up the stairs with uh, a lovely guy named uh, Hilo Adov, who was one of the Dabawalas, and we picked up the lunches and then we brought them to the train station and we sorted them and then we put the, all the lunches on, well, I didn't put them on my back, he put them on his back. We went to the luggage compartment of the suburban Mumbai railway and got in the luggage compartment and put the lunches on the ground and roared into downtown Mumbai and got out at the appropriate stop and went and delivered the lunches and then took a lunch break ourselves and then went back and picked up the empties and did it all over again. It's grueling work, um, but they end up doing it with um, an incredible degree of accuracy because they're so well synchronized. I want to finish off talking about how time, the concept of time itself is embedded in our language. Mm. Um, the word time, we can all think right. there's multiple uses for it. Right. But most specifically here, how our concept of the future can change depending on what language we speak. Oh, yeah. This is really interesting. And it shows, again, some of our, you know, when I say we're temporal creatures, that goes to our brain as well. And so what, what you see is some fascinating research from a guy named Keith Chen at the University of California, Los Angeles, that shows that the language you speak can be predictive of your savings behavior, how much money you save. And so what he, there's a distinction in languages that have a strong future tense and a weak future tense that we can, it's a little oversimplified, but strong future tense and weak future tense. So English has a strong future tense um, uh, in that we say, I will go to the store. That means I'm not at the store right now, it's not happening at this moment, but in the future, I will go to the store. Other languages have essentially the same verb tense for I'm going to the store and I will go to the store. Chinese would be a good example of that. And it turns out that languages with weak future tenses, people who speak languages with weak future tenses are more likely to save for retirement. Now this seems preposterous. And what it has to do with is our notions of, of time. When we have a clear distinction between the past and the future, we tend to think of ourselves, future me, as a different person. Whereas in the weak future tenses, it's much more integrated. And you see this in other kinds of research too, that one way to get, especially Americans, to save more for retirement is say more money for retirement is to show them images of themselves in which they have been age advanced. So my, my brain views future Dan as a different person than present Dan. But if I see a photograph of me advanced to the age of 80, I'm like, oh my God, that's me. I better start saving for that guy. And I, and I think there's something healthy ultimately about 
this integrating past, present, and future. I think that in, in some ways, a goal of understanding ourselves, understanding life, is to integrate the three. Okay, just one more thing then to finish up. And we've been talking mainly in this interview about the science that's yeah. in the book. Um, but what you also have in the, in the book is is sections that talk about you know, how we can apply oh, absolutely. these sure. things in our own life. And we have mentioned a couple of those things for yourself in terms of napping and in terms mm. of more breaks. But Dan, how else have you incorporated some of the stuff that you've learned in this research into your own life? Uh, many, many ways. So for instance, there's research on when to give the good news and when to give the bad news. If you say, I've got some good news and some bad news, uh, I would always give the good news first because, you know, I want it to lay down a cushion, um, it's uncomfortable, and that's the wrong way to do it. Um, there's research showing if you ask people, what do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news? People want to hear the bad news first. And it goes back to our preferences for endings with rising sequences rather than declining sequences. So I have completely changed my way. I always give the good news, I'm sorry, I always give the bad news and then the good news. Uh, that's one way that it's changed my behavior. I've become much more conscious of endings. So I have to say, Neil, I'm glad you asked that because you know, this is the sixth book that I've written, but I think that this book, more than any book that I've written, really changed the way that I do things in my own life. Okay, well, I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want the bad news first. I can't believe I did this. We're at the end of the interview. Oh, bad news. However, the good news is uh, you can buy When the Scientific <laughs> Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink from Canongate Books from now. Dan, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it It's with been us. a pleasure to be on Little Adams. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.